Thank you for tuning in to Aggie Catholic Talks. This talk is a recording from The Well on November 4th, 2021. Kevin Pesek sat down with our guest speaker from Magnify, Meg Hunter-Kilmer, to talk about sainthood. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with other talks, including future talks from Magnify. Thanks, God bless, and gigum. Uh, Meg is a traveling missionary evangelist, you might say. She goes from place to place, lives out of her car, has no place to call home per se, right? And one of the questions that our students submitted was, Meg, how did you discern that, that that was what God was calling you to do? Um, oh, hi. I just, I, can I just say that I love it here? And I'm like really excited to be here and y'all are amazing. Um, and, and I'll answer the question in just a second, but I, I do have to say like, and I, I don't tell everybody this, like I really do love it here. Like I had, we've got some stuff going on in my family and so I canceled my whole fall, uh, like all of my plans and I texted Kevin and was like, can you fly me down? Cause I still want to come. Cause I just like, I just like being with you guys. So thanks for she being here. She does have an ID. She can fly. She's not like, you I, know, I, It's her. true. It's true. I have a legal address because otherwise you can't have anything. Um, and I was talking to somebody one time and he's like, you know, thought he was going to go D1 for football. Um, and he didn't. Um, but he thought he was going to. And he was like, come on, Meg. Like, don't you think that I could play Division One and like not lose my soul? And I was like, if you go to A&M. So there you go. That's how I feel about y'all. Um, so how did I discern that God was calling me to be a hobo? So I was a teacher for five years and I loved teaching. Whoa. Okay. Wow. Some high Talk to me in five years. Uh, <laughs> And I, I creepy loved teaching. I mean, like su Sunday night, I was like, oh my gosh, it's almost Monday. Like so excited for Monday morning. Not normal, right? People don't feel that way about Mondays. And I'm naturally a really angry person. Like in the grocery store, probably half a dozen times. I just want to like body check the old ladies into the cans. Cause like, why are you in the middle of the aisle? And in the classroom, in four and a half years, I was angry two times. And I was a high school teacher. I don't know if y'all have met a high school student, uh, but that's a miracle, right? That's a miracle from Jesus Christ. And I knew, like, the whole time I was like, it is clear that God has given me this particular grace in my teaching career and, like, just honestly miraculous that I have this supernatural patience and peace um, for four and a half years. The trouble is I taught for five years. And uh, that last semester, the grace was withdrawn. And I'm not saying if things get hard, run, but I'm saying if things are supernaturally hard, pay attention, right? If everything external is the same and the internal suddenly shifts, you got to listen to that. You got to take that to prayer. And so, you know, I, I knew I was, I was prayed up. Like I had been to confession and I was making my daily holy hour and I was like, okay, well, let me look at sort of like the circumstances of my life. Because when, when you're discerning, it's not just a spiritual thing, right? You also have to recognize that you have a body. And so if you like have been sleeping three hours a night for six weeks and you think you should discern out of your major, like you might need a nap. Um, or you might need a new major because why are you getting three hours of sleep? Maybe you just need to like, I don't know, sit around and chat fewer than 12 hours a day. Um, so I was like, okay, you know, I'm feeling really sort of strangled. I was living in a dorm on a, at a boarding school that I was teaching at and I didn't have a car. And I was like, well, I'll just like, maybe I just feel suffocated. I'll just buy a car, which is an expensive way to discern. Um, but I bought a car that did not fix things. And so I was like, okay. So I prayed about leaving the school and I felt a lot of peace and I prayed about staying and I felt a lot of anxiety, a lot of unrest. This is a style of discernment that only works if you are in a state of grace, go to confession. It also only works if your prayer life is not 100% trying to figure out God's will. 
right? Your prayer life needs to be 100% running after Jesus and trying to fall in love with him. And then discernment is something that's a fruit of that, right? So I was spending serious time in silent prayer every day. I had that groundedness in building a relationship with Jesus. And then from there, I was like, all right, let's pray about leaving. And I was like, I guess I should pray about not teaching. Like, that's not a real thing, right? Like, it's all I've ever wanted to do. It's all I've ever trained for. I prayed about not teaching, and I felt this resounding peace, which should be a good thing. But I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? I have a master's degree in theology, right? That and a winning personality will get you a second interview at McDonald's. This is not a lucrative degree. Um, And a priest friend of mine was like, you've been wanting to do more public speaking. You're good at that. I was like, that's cute. You can't just quit life and be a public speaker. And I took it to prayer and God was like, tell me why not? And I don't generally hear voices when I pray, um, but you know, sometimes you know what the Lord is saying. And I literally, I'm sitting there and I'm like super type A, very achievement oriented, have spent my entire life impressing people. And I was like, yeah, I should totally just live in a car and not have a job and go to my high school reunion at the number one high school in America and tell my classmates, a dozen of whom literally work for NASA, I live in a car. And that seemed like a good idea, which it is objectively not. And so I was like, that's got to be the Holy Spirit, right? Because when you find yourself really drawn to something that's totally contrary to your natural inclinations, like you just got to pay attention to that. And I was like, there's no way I would have come up with this idea. This is the last thing in the world I would want to do. Um, So it's got to be from God. And I thought it was going to be for two months. It will be 10 years in May that I have been living out of my car. So I'm apparently pretty spot on on the what of discernment, a little bit dicey on the how long, which is fair. Because if 10 years ago God had been like, I want you to live in a car indefinitely, I would have been like, I need uh, to get my brain scanned. Like, this is clearly a tumor, right? What is is going on? That's not normal. Um, But in 10 years, 50 states, 25 countries, I've never once had to get a hotel room. Because uh, I've had a place to stay every night, so I think I'm shower too. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> well, it's less important. Now, one of Meg's, uh, I think, one of her gifts is uh, whenever anybody in my RCIA class needs help finding a saint, I'm like, why don't you tweet at Meg? <laughs> and she's like a saint matchmaker. All right, she's really good at pairing people up with saint friends, people that can, you can uh, relate to on a very, very powerful level. In fact, she's written two books on saints that just came out, right? One of them is a kid's book, which I have for my kids, and it's fascinating. And then there's the adult, adulty version of the book, which is also, I have not read it yet, but I assume incredibly good. Um, <laughs> right? Thank I can you for that, that assumption. I, can that I think it's I'm really very confident good. in that I mean, I, I don't know. I have pretty high standards for books, so. So, Meg, how, did you, how do you feel like you became a saint matchmaker? Why are saints such a big part of kind of your life and your ministry? You know, I wasn't always into the saints um, because I think the way that saint stories are usually told is vapid and not at all about Jesus and usually doesn't involve a story, right? And so it's like, she was very holy and became a nun the end. And I'm like, well, good for her. <laughs> like, I don't know what that's supposed to do for me. Or, you know, they have this list of dry facts and it's like every date of every sacrament he ever received. And you're like, I mean, great. Like, I'm pro-sacraments, but like, what did he do and who cares? And so, you know, the way that these stories were told, I, I wasn't interested. And I think, broadly speaking, the saint stories that I was told, it was, it was very, very saccharine and very placid, and I am not those things. And so I, I thought holiness looked like, ah, 
you just had to be so sweet and I'm not, right? And I tried, I tried to like jam myself into this snow white model of holiness and I just wanted to murder everybody. Um, and then I discovered Teresa of Avila and I was like, okay, there's at least one salty saint, I'm good, right? And sort of moved on. Um, but it wasn't until I ran across a book called Modern Saints by Ann Ball uh, and I saw these stories told well. And I was like, hang on, this could be interesting. And I've always been a storyteller. I just never had any worthwhile stories to tell. So I told worthless stories because I can't not tell stories. And I discovered the saints and I was like, oh, this might be what I was made to do. And I began to realize that if you really dig down below the surface level and you start to see the brokenness and the struggle and the mental illness and the disability and the addiction and the dysfunction in the families and, and the failure and the uncertainty and the doubt, the lives of the saints bring such hope to the church. And I, I think as an evangelist, the biggest obstacle that there is in preaching the gospel is to be able to convince somebody that their shame that the element of their life that th they think makes them ineligible for God's love, that that is in fact an avenue for God's love. And that's a particularly difficult thing when you don't actually know what that is for somebody, right? Like I don't just walk up to you, shake your hand and be like, ooh, addiction, <laughs> let's talk about that, right? And so realizing not only that the, the stories of the saints are compelling and can convince people to listen to you talk about Jesus when they wouldn't otherwise be interested, but also that through the stories of the saints, I can name people's suffering and I can name their brokenness without pointing a finger at them. And I can say, this is how God brought glory to his name through drug addiction. This is how God brought glory to his name through divorce. This is how God brought glory to his name through sexual assault, right? These are not good things. Um, you know, divorce may in certain circumstances be necessary for the safety of the people involved, but like, it's not like God was like, oh yes, drug addiction, got it, right? But like, that God can take our struggle and our suffering and even the parts of our lives that aren't necessarily bad, but that can seem like obstacles to holiness, right? Like your athletic ability or your love of music or your disability, right? Like whatever it is in your life where you're like, I haven't seen what holiness looks like in this framework. The devil can use that to tell you, well, God doesn't want you, right? Like God doesn't want D1 athletes, right? God doesn't want engineers, like garbage, right? And so when you hear the stories of the saints and you're like, here's a saint who was an amazing athlete. Here's a saint who was a brilliant engineer. Here's a saint who was living with addiction. Here's a saint who went to get to like inpatient mental health treatment. Like, and that was part of his experience of holiness. Like it just, it brings so much hope and it really helps people to understand how wildly loved they are. Um, everything about hopefully my life, but certainly my work, is trying to convince people that they are unceasingly loved by God. And I think the saints are just a really easy way to do that. I think that one of the cool things about the book, uh, when I read it with my kids, in the front there's like a map. And on the map it just has numbers of all the different saints of like where they lived in the world. So you can actually look and see, well, I want to learn about a saint that lived in Asia or in Africa or in Europe or whatever like that. It's fascinating. One of the questions one of our students submitted and I think we already answered this, but how do we facilitate a more ethnically, culturally inclusive community? One of the ways we do that is by raising up examples of what that looks like. You know, but can you give any other thoughts as to how as a church we might um, 
you know, become more diverse or to again share these experiences that might not be my own. Yeah, that I think that's an incredibly important um, thing for the church to be focusing on in the 21st century, particularly in the United States, because broadly speaking, the images of Catholicism we have in this country, uh, certainly up until five years ago, uh, it looks like a very white church, right? You walk into a church and you see 18 Irish people on one side and 18 Italians on the other side, and maybe like someone Stark Martin de Porres somewhere, right? Um, you might have like a, a little statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and that's a start. The church is not white, broadly speaking, right? There are lots of white people. I'm white. Welcome. So glad you're here. Um, but the church has never been an exclusively European reality, and the church at first was not a primarily European reality and is not now primarily a European reality, right? The, the first African saint was St. Simon of Cyrene. The first saint in India was St. Thomas in the year 52, right? The apostles are all Middle Eastern. They, the church has been multicultural from the very beginning. And when we get to know the saints, we see just this incredible diversity, not just in terms of life experience and struggle and all of those things that I just mentioned, but also like saints from all over the world. So this book has saints from 70 different countries. Um, it's 100 stories of saints from 70 different countries. Um, I think off the top of my head I can probably name like servants of God on up from like 95 different countries you have to list the countries for me I can't I can't list the countries but if like I went through a list of countries with someone and I think I came up with 95 um, they're there and the stories are amazing we just haven't been hearing them and so that's something that I really try and do is to amplify those stories um, not because those stories are more important than stories of European saints or saints of European descent but just because they haven't been told and it's not for lack of saints right there's hundred and three saints from South Korea and 124 blesseds from South Korea and 252 servants of God from South Korea. If you don't know any South Korean saints, it's because nobody's made an effort, right? It's not, it's not for lack of saints there. And so actually you can go on my Instagram um, and you can check out my story highlights and I've got a highlight for black saints and Asian saints and indigenous saints and Latin American saints and Middle Eastern saints. And I think that might be all of them. Uh, but getting to know those saints and being intentional, especially those of you who are in leadership, who are maybe giving talks, being intentional about trying to find saints who uh, represent the diversity of your community. And by your community, I mean Texas A&M Catholics, but I also mean the entire Catholic Church, right? And to show what, it, what the church looks like as a whole is just really really affirming to people to see themselves, right, in every element, every aspect of themselves, to see themselves helps people to know that they are wanted and that they are home in this church. I will say, thanks to Meg, I had one of the coolest experiences I ever had when I, I got to go to Rome a couple years ago, and um, Meg has been to Rome and has a blog and talks about all this stuff, and she was like, you, and I reached out to you, and you, you said, and you told me you need to go, um, I'm forgetting it now, the, the island in the middle of the Tiber. Uh -huh. Um, San Bartolomeo. San, San Bartolomeo. You have to go to this church because it's, it's a church of the modern martyrs. So when you go to this church, they have like uh, they have like different altars for like different saints, like the saints from South America. Or, so they, and they have like saints from Central America, and they have like Oscar Romero's breviary there. You know, they have all these modern relics, and you go to this church, and it's like these aren't dry stories. These mm -hmm. are things where you can almost say the blood is still wet for I mean, some of them. I was know? there once. I was there in. November, 
no, sorry, I was there probably in like 2016, and I had been in Turkey in November of 2014, and I saw a relic from someone who was martyred in Turkey in 2011. And I was like, dang, that's like last week, right? Like this is, this is happening now in places where I go. Um, and just the realization that that call to sainthood is happening now. I mean, I think that's why people love Carlo Acutis so much is because like, Blessed Carlo Acutis was born in 1991, which might seem old to you, but like some of, some of those of us around here with some gray hair coming in, like I could have babysat him, you know? And like I went and saw him when he was still buried in a graveyard uh, before they moved him into the church in Assisi and we like hunted down his grave and I'm standing there in front of his gravestone and it says 1991 and I was just like, what have I been doing? Like, what have I been doing with my life, right? And I went home and I was talking to a friend and I was like, he was born in 1991 and he's gonna be a saint. Like, what have I been doing? And he was like, not dying? I mean, that's sort of, <laughs> sort of a prerequisite. And I was like, I mean, fair point, but still, like, no one's making relics out of me when I die, right? So. I think it's some, it's just, the saints just really ground us, mm -hmm. right? That, that's like, they're so real. They're so, it's, again, we're so incarnational in us. That's why we have relics in the altars. Like, it's something I can touch. I can go and look and see Oscar Romero's bravery. I can go see the body of St. Bernadette or Blessed Carlo Acutis or anything like that. I think it's something that's very unique to us, right? It, very, it brings our faith down, right, to where that could be me. Exactly, right. and, it, and it must be you, right? Like looking at Carlo Acutis and like you can go on his website and it's actually fantastic if you can like, it like redirects you automatically right now to like a new one that is like based on his stuff but you can get to his like actual website and there's like a little like a little portal that you can go in and you it like puts you inside a spaceship because it's 2006 right and you can like play tetris and stuff and it's just like normal ordinary kid stuff and there's like a section where he's like these are my pets and there are like pictures of his dogs and cats but looking at that and being like this is just an ordinary 15 year old kid on the internet in 2006 right and and saying, but also, he's got this section of his website where he devoted his entire life to helping people know Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, right? So like, looking at my social media, it's like, totally okay that I wanna tell people about the TV show that I'm enjoying right now, but also, like, the point needs to be drawing people to Jesus. The way we do that, though, is being authentically ourselves, right? Carlo played saxophone, and it, he had a bike, and he played PlayStation, right? Like, he did normal, regular stuff because that's what it means to be authentically integrated. And to see somebody who has that experience of like living in the world and loving the things of the world and yet doing it all for the sake of the gospel, I think makes it hard for us to say, ah, well, I'll just have college. And then after that, right? After that, I'll live for Jesus. And Carlos over there like, well, why not both, right? <laughs> like living that meme. So somebody had a question on here about um, most wild encounter you have had while evangelizing. I know there's been a lot, but what, what is something that pops to mind was like, that was a crazy story? You know, I was um, standing in front of the cathedral in New Orleans um, some years ago, and I had grabbed a couple of seminarians, and I had a sign that said free prayers, and another that said you are loved. When I go out and do street evangelization, I always have these two signs, one that says free prayers and one that says you are loved. Because even if you're not gonna stop and talk to me, I want those two images to go together. I want you to think, the person who wants to pray for me is also the person who wants me to know that I'm loved. Um, and so we went to Cathedral Square in New Orleans. Has anybody been there? It is beautiful and it is dark. It is, it is ugly and there is a lot of evil, a lot of evil. 
um, just like a lot of voodoo and Santeria, a lot of syncretism, a lot of occult stuff going on there. So I was like, I'm not really sure what to expect. You know, like a lot of people are there for like New Orleans and, uh, you know, a lot of people are in that square, particularly for nefarious purposes. But I was like, you know what? Like if people are going to preach the gospel of Satan, I'm going to go and preach the gospel of Jesus, right? I mean, it's St. James Square. Um, and so we go with our signs and we're standing there and we're having some really beautiful encounters and a lot of, uh, a lot of people coming up and asking for prayers. Um, because, you know, it's, it's sort of like what happens in New Orleans stays in New Orleans. And so people who aren't, like, normally praying people, um, they're like, yeah, okay, well, I'll try this. Like, I tried tarot cards over there. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we're finishing up and we're leaving. And this lady who was reading tarot cards is like, wait, 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 stop, stop. And I'm like, oh, what are we going to do now? And she's like, wait, stop, hang on, hang on. And she, like, runs up to us. And I was like, okay, Jesus, here we go. Here's a conversation. And she was like... I just need you, I just need you fathers to pray for me. Like I've been, you know, I I go to mass every Sunday and I try and go during the week, but like I've got this son and he like he, he recently, I don't remember the story, like maybe her son had died and she was asking us to pray for him, but like I had totally written this woman off because I was like here she is involved in, you know, this if it's not like full on occult, it's, she's at least using the materials of the occult for for her own gain and and I figured this is a woman who has like turned her back on Jesus, but just like recognizing her hunger and her longing to encounter the Lord um, and that for her this was not a rejection of Jesus because she just she wasn't aware that that was that that was a conversation that that was what she was doing she didn't know that it was a problem and I just recognizing in myself the way that I had written her off um, that I wasn't willing even to stop and listen to her and to love her in her brokenness because I'd put her in a category um, I'd stuck her in a box, and I'd sort of shoved her to the side. Um, so I've actually never told that story before, so I don't know who that's for. Um, but <laughs> apparently somebody, a Holy Spirit, wants to uh, stop doing tarot cards. Um, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> or maybe, maybe stop sticking people in boxes and deciding that certain people don't deserve to be evangelized because they've already made their choice and they have to live with it. Maybe even your roommates. Maybe even your siblings. Yeah, I don't know. So speaking of evangelization, um, I know something that I struggled with when I was in college was a sense of triumphalism, you know, like, oh, I'm so much better, all these, all these poor the people that aren't Catholic, like, I'm going to go do them a favor, you know, and kind of shine the light on them so they can see things. How, how do we kind of dial that back in a very healthy sense and have some humility when we encounter someone that, again, for, for lack of a better term, does not have the truth, does not believe in the truth that we believe. Mm -hmm. How do we encounter them and kind of avoid this sense of triumphalism? Oh, man, that's important. It's so important. Um, because when we come at people like we are the victors and we know everything and we just need to smack them in the face hard enough with the Bible, like, first of all, it's just not effective, right? And this is, this is my big thing. You know, when you see people, like, sort of losing their souls on the Internet because they're so eager to break other people down and destroy them with their ridiculous arguments. I just, I want to be like, okay, first of all, like, go to confession. Second of all, it's not going to work, right? Like, even forget the fact that it's not Christian. It's not going to work. Nobody responds to being punched in the face with truth, right? Especially not when you're also treating that, like, acting like a jerk, right, and using these ugly words. So, like, part of it's just, like, it's not effective, right? So keep that in mind. Um, but I think that when we when we view the gospel as um, as something that we can use 
to prove that we're right and we're better than people, we make an idol of truth itself. And we become incapable of seeing the other as an object of God's love, right? Other people are just there to be converted and they're they're part of your quota, right? And you're trying you're trying to win them over. Um, and you may, you're, I mean, you're right, like people need Jesus, they need the gospel. Um, but we stop seeing the person and we stop seeing the brokenness and we stop honoring the suffering. And Jesus came for the broken and the wounded and the suffering. And the reason they need him is because of their brokenness and their woundedness and their suffering. Everybody, right? Even the people who don't realize that they're broken. That's always what draws people into the heart of Jesus is because they need him because, because they're fallen, because they're sinners, because they're lost, and they need the shepherd to come running after them. And I think we often, we attack people's brokenness um, especially, I think, in the third millennium, right? Like we, because we we see people's experiences um, that draw that push them away from the church, and we're like, oh well, you're wrong. <laughs> we're like, these these are souls for whom Jesus died, right? And when we encounter people in their suffering, and when we listen to people's experience of woundedness at the hands of the church and when we hear what people have like authentically experienced in the way that church teaching has been presented or like hearing about the crisis in the church or the way that people have talked to them about human sexuality or you know like the crazy stuff that people have said you know like I don't know they're like QAnon Catholic uncle right or whatever and and the ways that people are like really deeply wounded and when you like hit them in the face with John 6 when they say my father was abused by a priest. Like, who is that going to help, right? Um, and so I think, but like, people don't always lead with that suffering, you know. People aren't like, oh, I'm not Catholic because I don't. I never believe that my father loved me, and so I don't think that it's possible for there to be a paternalistic religion that can speak to the woundedness of my heart. People are just like, no, I don't think it's true, right? And so you respond to what they're saying by trying to convince them with arguments. And y'all, like, I have two degrees in the arguments, okay? Like, I'm a fan of the arguments. Um, but when we lead with arguments, we don't, we don't speak into that suffering and that brokenness. Um, and so I think if you recognize just the sacredness of being able to encounter somebody who doesn't know Jesus and what a gift it is to be able to walk alongside someone who is living in that woundedness and hasn't yet had the Lord speak healing into that, like to treat that with reverence and to say like, this is sacred ground that I'm approaching right now, right? And I'm not just gonna like fling the summa at sacred ground, <laughs> right? Like I might keep the summa in my back pocket, right? Because Thomas knows what he's doing, but like I'm gonna come with, with wonder and with reverence before broken people who want to be loved and I'm gonna love them. And when you love them and you begin, they begin to let you enter into those wounds, then you can speak about hope and about peace and about joy. But the best way to do it is to share about how the Lord has healed your wounds. Even the wounds that aren't all the way healed yet. Right? Even the things that are still really hard and really tender, um, to say, this is where my brokenness is, and this is how God has spoken into that. Because then people can hear that as an offering of hope for themselves instead of just seeing you as a person who was raised Catholic who memorized the catechism and is now going to try and use it to solve all their problems. 
sounded like you were uh, stealing some Pope Francis joy of the gospel there, the, mm. the reverence of the other. He talks about mm-hmm. that, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the work that God has already done, already doing in a person's life. And you're thinking, oh, I'm going to come in here and let's just swipe everything here and I'm going to do it my way. And uh-huh. The Lord might have been, you know, slowly right. building and you just <laughs> He's like, oh, crushed dang. the house of cards. <laughs> yeah. That can yeah. be rough. Um, what do you think, what would you recommend one saint or one blessed or one venerable that you think we should all learn about? Ooh. Ooh. Dang, shoot, really? One? Can I, can I have like a, a ballpark, like a topic? One man, or? one woman. How about Ooh, that? Okay, all right, okay. That makes me feel better. Um, all right, I'm going to do the first two that came to mind, and we're going to trust that that's the Holy Spirit. So Venerable Jan Tiranovsky was a... Um, a blue-collar bachelor who was chronically ill and lived with his mom until he died young. And he is the reason communism fell in the West. Jan Taranowski was a, Jan, right, was a 20th century Polish dude. Um, he was, a, he tried to be an accountant for a while, but his health wasn't really great, so he went back to work at his parents' tailor shop and Living in Poland in 1940, most of their priests are deported, sent to prison camps. And the two elderly priests who were left behind were like, hey, can you run a youth group? And he was like, no, I cannot. And they were like, right, so you're it. And he was like, okay. And he had had this conversion, 1935, he'd been at mass, and this Carmelite said, it is not difficult to become a saint. And he had said like, okay, I'm gonna do it. So he's living this very ordinary life and he's praying four hours a day, you know, like like you do. and, and he starts this youth group, and he's not very good at it. He's sort of a socially awkward guy. Um, and his youth group is like a, a group of college-age guys. And this one guy comes up to him, and he's like, hey, like, I don't know about Mary. You know, and he's Polish, right? So he's not going to be, like, done with Mary. But he's like, I think Catholics might pay a little bit too much attention to Mary. And Jan Ternowski's like, well, why don't you check out this book? And he hands him Louis de Montfort's True Devotion to Mary. And, right, um, and this kid, he goes, and he reads this book. And he's totally transformed by it. And he takes as his motto this central line of de Montfort's book, Totus Tuus Maria. And it was his motto when he became a priest. And it was his motto when he became a bishop. And it was his motto when he became a pope. And Pope John Paul kept a photograph of his, high, his college youth minister on his desk till the day that he died. Jan Tiranowski died six months after John Paul II was ordained a priest. He never saw the fruit of his labor. He had no idea. He's a chronically ill, blue-collar bachelor living with his mother. He was an absolute failure. And he's the reason we have the luminous mysteries. And he's the reason we have the theology of the body. He's the reason that we have the new catechism, right? Like, he's the reason communism fell in the West. Because he was faithful in showing up to what was asked of him in the moment. And I think that's especially encouraging for those of us in ministry who just feel like all we ever do is fail. Uh, And we never ever see the fruits of our labor to know that you don't have to see the fruits for them to be there. And then for a woman, I wanna give you blessed Columba Kangwan Suk. Um, So Jan Tiranowski's in this book, so he doesn't have a picture, but Columba Kangwan Suk is in this one. She um, was South Korean and she was, a, a noble woman, and she was married to, thank you, married to a widower, and she's a stepmom, and she has a kid, um, 
And she encountered the gospel very early on. Uh, Korea, South, oh, Korea is just the coolest, right? The only country in the world to have evangelized itself. Every other country ever was evangelized by missionaries. South Korea, well, it was just Korea at the time. Korea, some teenagers found a copy of a book about Catholicism in Chinese, read it, and were like, yeah, this is true. Smuggled one of their number out to get baptized. He got smuggled back in for the first 50 years that there are Catholics in Korea. There's one priest for five years total. And he was an undocumented immigrant from China, right? So like, Korea's killing it. Um, Columba Kang Wansuk, she's there at the beginning, right? So um, just a few years after those guys had discovered the gospel, had started evangelizing, she encounters Jesus. She's like, let's do this. And she becomes this evangelist within her family. And she converts her parents. She converts her mother-in-law. She converts her stepson, blessed Philip Hong Pilju. She does not convert her husband. And her husband is not thrilled with any of what's going on here. And finally, he's like, I don't need this. And he leaves her for a concubine, which, you know, he doesn't sound like he was awesome, but that's not how she wanted her life to go, right? She didn't want her husband to walk out on her. She didn't want a broken marriage, but she looks at this and she's like, all right, what? Like, I trust that God is working, right? I trust that God is working. And before long, she realized there was a law in Korea at the time that the police couldn't search the home of a noblewoman if she didn't live with her husband. And so because her husband had left her, she now had this like no man's land, right? This, this safe zone that the police couldn't enter. It was against the law. And it was also against the law to be a Christian, but not in Columbus house. Right? So she starts gathering all of these women who were making vows of virginity. When the priest, blessed James Juwenmo, gets smuggled into the country, he goes to Columbus House. She's in charge of him. She spends six years basically running the entire church because her husband had walked out on her. Right? And she, like, when you're reading the stories of the Korean martyrs, like, from that era, I think half of them it was like, well, he was a pagan, and then he met Columba Kong Won Suk. And then he became a martyr. And you're like, right, because that's just the kind of person that she was. Um, and so, you know, she ends up, she spends six years and she's smuggling them all around. She converts some princesses and like all of these other people. She's a catechist, which is like a big deal for a woman to be designated as a catechist in that culture at the time. But like she's always depicted holding a book because she was in charge of evangelizing and catechizing all of the women. She's also the translator for father much of the time. Eventually she was captured and she was martyred. But I think she's a really good one to hang on to in moments in your life when you're like, what the heck? Like, I am trying to be faithful, Lord, and this is what you give me. Like, this is where my life goes. This is what my family does. This is what happens in my career. And just to be able to step back and say, you know what? Like, this is awful. And I'm not going to pretend this isn't awful, but I know who you are. I know that God is working. I know that I am not abandoned. I know that the Lord can always bring greater good out of any circumstance in my life, no matter how horrific. And so I'm going to sit here and I'm going to say, all right, Jesus, you do what you're going to do because this is awful. You get to say that, right? We're going to talk about that tonight. You get to say that. But in that suffering, she was able to say, but Jesus, I trust in you and I love you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you work. And he, I mean, he saved hundreds of souls, maybe thousands of souls. If you go down the years through the generations, probably millions of souls because Columba Kong Won Suk's husband left her. Like, dang, right? Our God works all things for good. All right, Meg, what's your Instagram handle? At uh, M. Hunter Kilmer. That's very creative. Thank you. I came up with it myself. Actually, I didn't. My last name's garbage. Um, I, would, I would not have picked it, but here we are. I'm stuck with it right now.
Don't hyphenate. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, so, you can do what you want. That's not like a, a decree from the church. Just, yeah. I've been hyphenated for 38 years. Don't hyphenate. Anyways, Meg does have books for sale in the back. You can do Venmo or PayPal, the little QR code. Um, if you want to look at those, I'm sure she can sign them for you also. Meg is also going to be around tomorrow. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one -on -one with her, there's a sign-up sheet on the table. I'll match I make think. you with a saint friend. It'll be super fun. Yeah, so she's great to talk to about. Really, I can't think of anything you're not great to talk to about. Um, um, anything you would prefer not to talk to. Engineering. Biomedical engineering. No, but actually, engineering. we were talking about that, and it was good, right? <laughs> um, hockey, hockey. Not hockey. Yeah, yet. I got nothing to say about hockey. All right, let's give Meg a hand. <laughs>